Hey, uh, this has been a challenging week. Don't know if you noticed that or not. Which means it's been a challenging year, all nine and a half days of it. And last year was a little bit challenging too. Don't know if you noticed that. Last Wednesday, the election was certified, and a large portion of the country seems to think it was fraudulent. However, if it had not been certified, an even larger portion of the country would be convinced that it was stolen. And of course, no one wants to lose, particularly the, the president. Even before the election, he basically announced, I can't lose, and even if they say I lose, well then clearly it was fra fraudulent, I, I win. So, so is it any wonder that he's hanging on? I mean, maybe we're all uh, hanging on. It's been hard for our country. It's been hard for the institutional church. Some prophesied that Trump would win the elect, that God, it was God's will that Trump would win the election this, this year, and, and, and God can't lose, right? Others thought we'd already lost by prophesying that Trump couldn't lose, and this past year it kind of seems like, like we all lost. For a time, it was even illegal to gather as a group. That's kind of tough on organized religion. I wonder if we uh, were going to make it. I wondered if we were going to make it to 20, 20, 2021. But about 350,000 of, of, of our fellow Americans did not. And in just the last week, like what, 20,000 more or something. Hard for the country, hard for the church, and hard for individuals. Yesterday I spoke, well, I did the, my cousin Tommy's funeral. He died from COVID. He would often watch online. He had watched the last few sermons before Christmas. Died right before Christmas Eve, leaving behind his wife and young daughter an uncertain future for those he, he loved. Many of you have lost loved ones and income and maybe some faith. Oftentimes I pray to God and I just say, God, um, I don't know if I can hang on any longer. Don't know if I can hang on. This week I kept thinking about a story that a Bavarian immigrant named Carl told the famous writer William Moon on, on a ferry ride across Lake Michigan years ago. When Carl was a boy, age of 14, he went fishing with a friend, and it was, uh, when it got to be late in the day, he and this friend decided to take a shortcut home from their fishing hole. The shortcut was along a railroad track that crossed a series of narrow gorges, crossed across trestles, you know, train, train trestles. Over these uh, three deep mountain gorges, they crossed the first two without incident, but by the time they got to the third, it was so dark that they could barely see their feet. It was a moonless night, a cloudy night. And so they held hands and they began to feel their way uh, across the trestle, crossing this, this gorge. Over halfway across, they suddenly were blinded by this bright light. A locomotive had rounded the corner up ahead and was coming directly toward them. They turned and tried to make their way back across the trestle, hopping from one tie to the next tie in the dark, but they were not fast enough. So at the last moment, all they could do was drop between the ties and hang on to the timbers as the train rumbled by overhead. When it finally passed, they tried to pull themselves back up onto the track, but their arms were too tired. And so all they could do was hang on for dear life and yell for help in the dark. They hung in the pitch black yelling for help, 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 and, and no one came. Inky black, dark night, and no one came. Carl prayed and promised to be good if only God would deliver them because he could not hang on much longer. I mean, maybe you feel like you just can't hang on much longer. Maybe we all feel like we just can't hang on much longer and we wonder, God, what do you want? 
What are you trying to say? How are we to have faith when all that's good is slipping away and we don't think we can hang on much longer? How do we have faith? Well, in Scripture, the father of faith is a man named Abraham. That's what he's called, the father of the faith. This week I kept thinking about that train trestle and those boys and, and Abraham, so I'd like to chat a little bit about that this morning. But before we do, let's pray. So just close your eyes for a minute and pray with me. Father, we pray that this morning we would hear your word. Maybe even better, Lord, we could, could we see your word and believe your word. And like Chris talked about last week, could we um, incarnate your word? Help us to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, before you open your eyes, keep, keep your eyes closed. I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you to just picture someone that you dearly love. Could be your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, or a friend, neighbor. I mean, for me, I naturally picture one of my kids. I, well, I picture John, Jonathan, my firstborn, firstborn son. Susan and I tried for a year, and she could not seem to get pregnant, and then John, John, is a miracle. He's an answer to our prayers. So imagine that person. And now thank God for that person. Because you see, that person is a miraculous blessing from God our Father. And now imagine that God spoke to you about that person. Saying, I want you to bind that person. Place that person on an altar. Cut their throat. And offer them to me by fire. <coughs> now you might want to open your eyes. Would you do it? I mean, everything within you recoils at even the thought or the question, right? You want to scream, my God would never ask such a thing. Well, demons will ask such a thing. I know this. But let's say that you bind the demons in Jesus' name and you're certain that it's actually, that it's actually the Lord that's talking to you. Would, would you do it? You say God would never ask such a thing, and maybe you're right. Maybe he would not ask such a thing of you, or at least not ask it in that way, but God would ask such a thing because he did ask such a thing. He asked it of Abraham. Genesis 2, verse 21, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I have wonderful Christian friends, even famous Christian friends that preach that because God is relentless love, surely God did not actually ask this of Abraham. Surely this is man's perception of God as God condescends to the limited understanding of pre-enlightened, bronze-aged culture, society. Surely Jesus has shown us, Jesus has shown us the true heart of the Father. The only problem with that is that Jesus and pretty much the entire New Testament refer to Abraham as the father of faith who truly rejoiced in Jesus. That's what Jesus said. He truly rejoiced. He saw my day. He rejoiced. Rejoiced in Jesus a few thousand years before Jesus was placed in that manger. If you jettison Abraham and Isaac, 
Seems to me you jettison God the Father and God the Son. Now, it's entirely true that in Leviticus, God forbids the Israelites from sacrificing their children to Moloch. And in Jeremiah, to those that had sacrificed their children to idols in the valley of Gehenna, God says, such a thing never entered my mind. But what he asks of Abraham to offer his son to him, well, then it must be profoundly different than offering your child to Molech in the valley of Gehenna, although to, to the untrained eye, at least from the outside, it looks the same. So, of course, some would say God would never ask such a thing. But unless you're willing to throw out just massive portions of the Bible, I think it's kind of clear that he did. Genesis 22, 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Why the hell would God need to test Abraham? To learn something that he did not know? or so that Abraham might know something that he had only begun to learn. When it's all over, God says this, because you have done this, I will surely bless you. But God had already told Abraham that he would surely bless him, formed a covenant, in fact, told him that he would bless him decades before. So God will bless Abraham because God had freely chosen Abraham to make this choice, this choice called faith. Abraham was chosen to choose. Abraham was predestined to make a good choice, and he discovered this on the mountain that God showed him. Genesis 22.1, after these things, God tested Abraham. Not like a math teacher tests a sixth grader. But, but more like an artisan tests gold and turns it into priceless treasure. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? Well, after God called Abraham and made an everlasting covenant with Abraham that in his seed, that's Isaac, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's you. After that. After that thing. And after, after, after Abraham had sacrificed everything, journeyed to Canaan, sojourned in Egypt, fought battles with king, kings, even basically pimped his own wife, Sarah, in order to save their own tails so they could produce the promised blessing. And after 10 years in impregnating Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant, trying to produce the promised blessing, the two of them, because God wasn't delivering the blessing. And then after Isaac, the promised blessing was finally born, 25 years after the promise was made when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 after God caused Abraham to put all of his faith, hope, and love in Isaac who had grown up before him. After all these things, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the promised seed, the miraculous blessing, whose name literally means laughter. Because we're biblically illiterate modern Americans, who I think have been fed a bunch of really bad theology, particularly into the meaning of the death of Jesus on the cross, we tend to think that sacrifice things are hated things. But you see, in Scripture, sacrifice things are usually the most beloved of all things, particularly the burnt offering, the ola in Hebrew offered up to God by fire. It, the Ola in Hebrew, well, it wasn't the sin offering, it wasn't the guilt offering, it wasn't the scapegoat, it was the sacred gift given to the Creator. Sacrifice your son, your life, Abraham, your past, your present, your future, your control. Sacrifice everything that you perceive to be good on a mountain in Moriah. According to scholars, Moriah means something like lesson of Yahweh or vision of Yahweh. So what kind of horrific vision is this? Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood, eights in Hebrew, 
for the burnt offering. That word eitz is also translated tree or even gallows. If a Hebrew in that day were to describe a cross, which they didn't know what that really was at that time, but that's the word he would use, eitz. You may remember that Abraham first had a vision of God in Genesis 12, 6 at the oak, that is the tree of Moreh. So scholars suspect that the name Moriah refers to that vision. So Moriah refers to a vision of God at a tree on a mountain, verse 3. So Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him, Mount Moriah. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Nahar in Hebrew, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, also Nahar in Hebrew, will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood, the eights of the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. Isaac is called a Nahar, and Abraham has him carry enough wood on his back up this mountain, uh, enough wood to reduce a grown ram to, to a pile of, of ashes. Isaac's not a little boy. Ancient rabbis argued that Isaac was 37, because that's the age when Sarah died, and they think Sarah's death was related to this, but they argue that Isaac was 37. He's at least, at least a teenager, and probably in his early 30s, like, like Jesus. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's not waiting for another lamb. Is this insanity? Because you see, it's not an obscure and insignificant passage. St. Paul wrote, Abraham is the father of all who believe. And this is the faith that is reckoned as righteousness. This is why Abraham is called the friend of God. From here on out, when God identifies himself to folks, he says, hey, I'm the God of, of Abraham, my friend. Is this insanity? Abraham is sacrificing everything that he judges to be good. and all his knowledge of how to make things good. Through Isaac, all the nations of the world will be blessed, says God. That's good. Now Abraham sacrifices life on a tree on Mount Moriah. It will be a vision of me. Perhaps no modern thinker has paid as much attention to Abraham as the young uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard taught that every person operates in one of three stages or spheres, and Abraham represents the last stage, the third stage, the third uh, sphere. Uh, Abraham on Mount Moriah is the paradigm for life in this third sphere. Kierkegaard argued that the foundational question for all people is, how can I be saved? How can I avoid death and, and live eternal life? And he taught that in each stage or sphere, a person seeks this salvation in a different way. So in the first sphere, the aesthetic sphere, uh, uh, the aesthetic seeks salvation through pleasure. And that pleasure can be very refined. The arts, Beethoven, philosophy, science, culture, religion. The God of the aesthetic is beautiful and attractive and intriguing. The aesthetic is a connoisseur and therefore a spectator, not a, not a participant. He seeks to possess the good. 
but is never possessed by the good. Bono used to sing, every artist is a cannibal, every poet is a thief. They all kill their inspiration and sing about the grief. The aesthetic wants to know about God, but refuses to be known by God. He admires God, like, you know, Judas admired Jesus and so wanted to consume Jesus. He admires the word of God, like Eve admired the fruit of the tree, seeing that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and so she took it and ate it. But Moriah was not appetizing to Abraham this day. And so he must have forsaken his desire for the fruit in order to make his offering on the mountain. He surrendered his desire for good to the source of all good. Who is good? Our God. The next stage or sphere, according to Kierkegaard, is the ethical sphere. The ethical man seeks salvation through his will rather than his appetites. He makes salvation, or he thinks salvation comes through knowledge of the good with which he can make himself good. Salvation comes through formulas then, and rules, and laws, principles. Uh, be it, you know, moral principles, moral law, social law, or the Ten Commandments. Do not covet, do not murder your son. That's how you save yourself according to the ethical man, how you save your, your soul, your psyche. He listens to sermons and asks, what can I learn from this sermon? What principles can I take from the Word of God and apply to my life? Like Judas, he comments, what a waste. This could have been, this perfume could have been sold and the money used to feed the poor. He's unable to worship. The ethical man desires God the way that Eve desired the fruit of the tree when she saw that it was to be desired in order to make one wise. And I doubt that Abraham felt wise as he climbed Mount Moriah. He was sacrificing his knowledge of the good to the one who is good. He was sacrificing his control of the blessing to the one who blesses. Is that insanity? The Bible calls it faith. Desire and pride take the good, consume the good, and use the good in the first two stages, according to Kierkegaard, but it's faith that surrenders the good back to God in the third stage. We're justified by faith, made right by, by faith. Therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice, writes Paul. See, See, Abraham wasn't just sacrificing Isaac, was he? He, he was sacrificing himself. He was, his, he was sacrificing his judgment and his perception of, of the good. He was sacrificing his, 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 his life, his psyche, his soul, his world. And what about Isaac? We think of Isaac as a little child. But Isaac is clearly a young man. If Isaac is 33 years old... That means Abraham is like 133 years old. And there is clearly no way that old Abraham could bind Isaac, place him on the wood, and offer him as a gift to God if Isaac didn't agree to offer himself to God. In other words, no one takes Isaac's life from him, but he lays it down freely of his own accord on a tree on Mount Moriah, he chooses to do what he sees his father doing, and that's faith. And where did he get that faith? He must have gotten it, I would suspect, from looking into his father's eyes. Just as Abraham must have gotten it from looking into God the Father's eyes somehow. When my daughter was about two, she cracked her head open on something, which happened every few weeks, and I had to take her to the doctor for stitches. It was hell. T to keep her from moving, they had to bind her. They had to tie her to this papoose board while men in green masks stuck needles in her head that was already bleeding, and worst of all, Daddy drove her to this place. A month or two later, it happened again, of course. 
But this time I said, Elizabeth, the doctors tell me that you, they don't have to tie you down if you would hold still. If you would just trust me, just look into my eyes and hold still. Okay, Daddy, she said. And so I got down real close to that gorgeous little terrified face, and I remember her eyes, they like locked onto my eyes as if they were reaching into my soul, grabbing hold of my faith, my heart, that I loved her and that I thought somehow this was the good. When I would give kids, my kids a gift, I remember they would always look at the gift. And when I would give my kids the law, well, they would uh, look away from me and be ashamed of themselves. But when my kids would suffer, they would look into my eyes, hang on to my heart, and let go of their own need for control, their fear. And so Elizabeth looked in my eyes, put faith in my judgment. Although it hurt and she did not understand, she surrendered control and she was still. She put her faith in me. More accurately, I think you could say, I put my faith in her. She didn't need to be bound by external constraints. She was constrained by her faith in my love. And the gift that we received was each other. Heaven in hell, the midst of hell. It, it didn't feel good, it didn't seem good, but Abraham surrendered to the one who is good, and Isaac freely surrendered to the Father, and that's faith. That's the thing that Adam lacked in the Garden of Eden. Faith that God is good and that his word is life. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, your only begotten son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. Now that's a grown lamb. I'm guessing about 33 years old. Caught in a thicket by his horns. That means he's caught by his strength. And what is his strength? Well, I, I think it's love. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in Ola instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What will be provided? What will be provided? And what mountain is he talking about? You know, according to Orthodox Jews, Moriah is Eden. And in Eden there was a tree, an Eitz, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the same spot, the tree of, of life. Two trees that look the same in one spot or one tree that functions as two, depending on how you take it or receive it. On the tree is the good in flesh. Jesus said, God alone is, is good. Jesus is God in flesh. He's the good in flesh. And on the tree is the life. And Jesus said, I am the life. And on the mountain there is a stone called the foundation stone. The Jews say that it's the place that Adam was made or is made. It's also the place where Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac which is also the place where David offered to sacrifice himself in order to save Jerusalem, which is also the place where Solomon built the temple, which is also the place where the Jews placed the Ark of the Covenant and made sacrifices and offerings to Yahweh, which is uh, right next to the place, right next to the place where Jesus was crucified, on a tree, in a garden, on Mount Calvary, that is Mar Mount Moriah, <laughs> that is Eden. If you ask, why would God have Abraham do such a thing? Let me remind you that God had already done such a thing for Abraham and for you. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, was slain from the foundation of the world for the love of you. Abraham was called the friend of God, for on Mount Moriah, 
He knew God's heart. Jesus said, quote, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Before Abraham was, I am. So you see, somehow Abraham must have felt just a little bit of what God felt as he gave himself to each of us. It was evil of us to take his life, right? And yet it was the revelation of the good that he gave his life from the foundation of the world. So what was provided on Mount Moriah? And now we can only just like barely begin to point, but number one, the knowledge of the good. God is good, and that he gives his heart to us is the revelation of the good. If Jesus is God in the flesh, he is the good in flesh, like, you know, like the blood in a grape. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, writes Paul. Jesus is the fruit of knowledge hanging on the tree in the Garden of Eden that is Mount Moriah, the mountain of the Lord. So do you see? It's like Abraham is returning the good to the one who is good and is the author of all good. He's surrendering the blessing. And yet in the same moment, God is giving the blessing by providing the lamb, the lamb that is slain from the foundation of the world, and is now also the promised seed in Abraham and in Isaac that is in fact returning. I mean, it really just, if you think about this, it just makes your head spin. In this is love, this, but this much is true. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, 1 John 4, 10. You see, that's the good. And Abraham knew it knew him, knows him, and in this is eternal life, said Jesus, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent, John 17. Do you see? The good in flesh that hangs on the tree in the Garden of Eden is the life. And it's the good in flesh and the life that Abraham now returns on the mountain even as God gives the good in flesh and the life as Abraham returns it. It's like a never-ending communion of life. And that's good. That's the good. Let me say it another way. Abraham is surrendering the blessing to the one who blesses. He's blessing the blesser. And in this way, he is infinitely and endlessly blessed. Abraham is surrendering his good to the one who is good, and here Abraham becomes the good, the very image of God. Abraham is surrendering his life to the author of life, and it's here that Abraham receives the life as his endless life, its eternal life. What's provided on the mountain? The knowledge of good. And even if it kills you, it turns out to be the life. Number two, the resurrection and the life. So think about it. When, when Adam took the knowledge of good and evil, he took the life. And the life died. The blessing died. And yet the blessing, it turns out, is a seed. Now Abraham returns to the tree, surrenders the seed. He surrenders everything that he perceives to be good. He surrenders the promised seed, which is his life. He surrenders Isaac, and lo and behold, Isaac lives. Do you see, through sacrifice, Abraham surrenders the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and then the miracle. In the very same moment, he receives it back. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring, your seed, your sperma, be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, faith is a decision to lose your life and find it. Because you know God is good. God is love. Faith is sacrifice in the name of love and for love. It is love. Faith is bleeding. 
and the life, the breath, the oxygen, the spirit is in the blood. When one person bleeds, it looks like a man crucified on a tree in a garden. When two people bleed for each other, it looks like a great marriage. When all people bleed for all people, it's a body, and it's a kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. Every soul constantly loses life and finds life, and that's, that's the good. Faith is the sanity of God. Faith is the logic or logos of, of love. Faith is the judgment of God in us. And, and where does faith come from? Well, it comes from the tree in the middle of the garden at the edge of time and eternity and found in the depths of the temple that is your soul. Faith in Abraham is the promised blessing in Abraham. It's the lamb who was slain in Abraham, the sperma, the seed in Abraham. It's the thing that Adam lacked before the fall. When God saw that the Adam was alone, and well, that's not good. It's the judgment of God in Abraham. It's righteousness in Abraham. Faith is reckoned as righteousness. Why? Because it is righteousness. God's not like fixing the books or something. It finishes Abraham in the very image and likeness of God. And you see, I think it had been in Abraham ever since God called Abraham at the Ur of the Chaldees. It had been in Abraham as a seed, but now it was rising within Abraham. It was like dead and now alive and beginning to make all things new. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord, and who's the angel of the Lord? The God-man class. Jesus, right? You've all been to the children's sermon. He called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. <laughs> wow. Declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And, and who's that? Well, that's also Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus is the promised seed. You read the whole Bible and you discover that. He's the seed that's been passed down through all these generations. He's the promised seed in Isaac. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your seed, your offspring, your seed, that, which is what? Himself. As the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your seed, your offspring, that what is himself, shall possess the gates of his enemies. In other words, the gates of hell will not withstand him in, in us. And in your offspring, in your seed, shall all the nations, that's, who is that? That's Sodom, that's Israel, that's Iran, that's the United States, that's you. All the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, myself, saying, offer me on Mount Moriah. <laughs> Crazy. So what is provided at the tree on the mountain of the Lord? Number one, the knowledge of the good. And the absence of good is evil, right? Which is hanging on to the good, not giving the good away. And number two, the life. And number three, faith in love, which is the judgment of God. And number four, everything, including you. Do you understand? You, you have to go to heaven eventually. Why? Because God promised you to Abraham. It's not just Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. It's you. Abraham inherits Lazarus, which in, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that's Eliezer. That was his Gentile servant, and he inherits Judah, who for a time is on the other side of the chasm, maybe has to weep and gnash his teeth in outer darkness, but Judah, which is great-great-great-grandson, and he inherits you. Abraham inherits you, and you inherit Abraham. Why? Well, because Scripture says all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But make no mistake, it's just exactly as Jesus said, just exactly as Jesus said, immediately after he revealed to his disciples that he would bear the wood up Mount Moriah and be offered up for the sins of the world. This is what he said. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his wood, his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, his psyche, his soul, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, his soul, his psyche, for my sake, will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world? Why would a man want to gain the whole world? Well, to save his life, right? That's why we buy. That's why we consume, to save our lives. Well, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeits his psyche, his soul, his life? I hope you pray for our president. Now, for some of you, that's easy. For some of you, that's hard. But I hope you all pray for our president because we're commanded to do that. 
And I don't mean this in a snarky way. It could be a snarky way, but I hope I mean this in a compassionate way. Or I hope I mean it in a compassionate way. Pray that he would learn to lose. In fact, pray that for everyone you know. Pray that especially for people that are in power. For we just learned that you cannot win unless you lose. You cannot win unless you lose because life is not a possession. It's a communion. In fact, nothing good is a possession. And now you know. And you will only come to live when you trust that you are the possession of the good. God is the good, and his word is life, and, and now you know. Or I should say now you are coming to know, because that's what we are learning, that's what we're coming to know in this fallen world, and yet you know it right now. You cannot win at marriage unless you learn to lose. You cannot win at friendship unless somewhere along the line you choose to lose. You cannot live until you learn to love. That would be another way of saying it. And this is love that you would lose, that another might win. In other words, that you would sacrifice. So would God ask such a thing of us? Well, actually, I think it's probably the only thing he asks of us. It's called love. So would God ask us to sacrifice a child like Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac? Well, no. Jesus was sacrificed once and for all, so no, and yet yes. For faith in us is Christ Jesus in us. You know, I've I've found that people who have never lost a child are just terribly offended at Genesis chapter 22. And yet there are people like my friend Mike who shared his testimony with us a few years ago. There are people like Mike that have lost a child and they are just infinitely blessed by Genesis chapter 22 because they know that they didn't lose their child to a tornado or to a disease or a catastrophe or chance or chaos or the void or the devil. They surrendered their child to their faithful creator and they know that they will receive that child back. Abraham received Isaac back that day and yet he still had to surrender Isaac and all things with him. In other words, one day Abraham would have to die. One day you will die. One day you will have to surrender all things to the Lord on Mount Moriah. And this is a crazy thing. I think this is gospel, but that day could be this day and every day. Because you know what else is provided on the mountain of the Lord? Number five, laughter. <laughs> now that's a shock, isn't it? But what does Isaac's name mean? It means he laughs. It's laughter. Soren Kierkegaard, he taught that laughter marks the transition from the first and second spheres into the third sphere. In the words of Charles Schultz, author of Peanuts, humor is proof of, of faith. Genuine laughter is evidence that you have died to your ego. Your ego is your desperate conviction that you must possess the good and make yourself good in order to live your life, that you must win in order to live when, in fact, you can only live once you've learned to die with Jesus. Laughter is evidence that you have stopped believing you must possess the good and have come to believe that the good has always possessed you. Uh, laughter is evidence that you no longer believe you must justify yourself, but you've come to believe that you have always been justified. Laughter is evidence that you've come to trust that you cannot save yourself, but that you have been saved from the foundation of the world. Laughter is letting go. 
Well, anyway, as I was saying, Carl and his fishing buddy, they hung from the train trestle in the dark as that freight train rumbled over their head. They hung for a long time. They saved themselves, but then they lacked the strength to pull themselves up onto the track. They hung there for a long time, crying, crying for help. They hung on for dear life, terrified of losing all good things. They hung alone in the darkness, feet dangling down into that black void, and then they saw a light. They heard a voice. At first, Carl thought it was God, and in a way, maybe it was. The voice said, what are you boys doing up there, making such a commotion, dangling from the, dangling from the timbers on the, the trestle? The, the man who had been shining his light in their face then turned uh, the light from their face to their feet, and they looked down at their feet and suddenly realized that between the ground and their feet was a gigantic distance of 10 inches. And they let go. And decades later, Carl was still laughing. Do you understand why we come here every Sunday? Every Sabbath? To let go. This is Mount Moriah. This is the tree. And here's the blessing, the word, the good, and the life. You don't possess it, but you must surrender it and discover that all along it's been given to you. He took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. So if you've been feeling like you just can't hang on, let go. Now, I need to real quickly say, by that I don't mean suicide. Suicide is not letting go. It's actually just the opposite. It's hanging on even tighter to control. Letting go is like a leap in the dark. It's faith. And if you say, well, Peter, oh, gosh, you, you don't understand. If I let go, I could die. Yep. But if you don't let go, you'll stay dead and alone in outer darkness. But if you do let go, you'll fall into the arms of your Father, the ground of all being. He's 10 inches away from you right now. So we invite you to come to the table, take a, a, one of the communion cups, go back to your seat. And, and when you take it, um, before you, you know, take it in or whatever, you peel the top off, pull the cracker out and the juice or whatever, confess your sin. And, and what is your sin? I think that's basically anything that you think you possess or control. You see, it's the good that you've taken and the life that you've stolen. It's the thing that's making you anxious. Confess it. Say, God, I can't hang on to the good and the life. Correct. The good and the life is hanging on to you. Confess your sin and then believe God's grace. God constantly gives you your life and all good things. All things are yours. You are Christ and Christ is God's. It was a snake and then your ego that convinced you otherwise. So repent. That's what you're doing as you ingest the logic of love. Amen. Amen. So listen. Yeah.
You just prayed, teach us to love like you love. Did you hear that? You were singing that in the song. Teach us your joy. Teach us life. Um, give us faith. And so I think if, if you just like close your eyes and, and look into the eyes of Jesus. I mean, you know what Jesus is like, right? Because, because he lived among us. You, you know what he's like. If, Look into the eyes of Jesus, and he says, um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, you're looking into the eyes of the Father, and you just ask, teach us to love like you love, and this is his answer. I am. You know, people say, um, we've all been forced to make sacrifices uh, during this time. We've all been forced to sacrifice. In hell, they say, yep, and that's a bad thing. In heaven, they say, yep, and that's a good thing. That's life. That's the essence of life. So next time, like me, you pray, God, I'm losing it. Listen closely, and I think you'll hear Jesus weeping, because he feels the pain of that. But listen even more closely, and I think you'll, all, you'll hear all of heaven giggling. <laughs> you are losing it. You can't hang on to the good and the life. But lo and behold, the good and the life has always been hanging on to you. And when you come to know it, that's life. See, I think that's good news. I think that's really good news. When we preach a sermon like this, you, well, now I'll start preaching again. But you already knew you were going to die, right? You already knew you were going to die. So that was no shock there. What you didn't know is that you're going to live forever. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.